Yeah, who could satisfy my soul and talking about Jesus being a fountain. Uh, Revelation 21 came to mind. I'd like to just read that to you, if I may. This is John writing. He said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on, seated on the throne, and behold, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. If you have your Bibles, we're in Titus chapter 1. And we're continuing our series, A Portrait of a Healthy Church. Now, let me set the scene for you and what's going on here. It was a beautiful spring day, okay? The birds were chirping, the flowers were blooming, little girls had on their brand new dresses, and little boys had their little clip-on ties, you know what I'm talking about? It was Easter Sunday morning. And on this particular Easter Sunday morning, there were two churches, one right across the street from the other. And one of the... Uh, the churches, when the pastor got up to preach, he stood in the pulpit and he said, he is risen. And the church and congre the congregation in unison said, Amen. he is risen indeed. Let's try that again. The pastor get up and said, he is risen. And the church in unison said, Amen. That's exactly right. They were there and the, the pastor's message was on the death burial and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now in the other church in the second church the pastor gets up to to preach and as he begins his easter sermon he says everyone here understands that jesus didn't actually rise from the dead that's not what we celebrate this morning we celebrate the idea of resurrection the bible story of the resurrection is a metaphor for new life for spring of beginning again and his congregation nodded their head in unison as if in agreement now, if you were sitting in that second church's sermon, that message that morning, what would you have done? Would you have got up and left? Would you have talked to the pastor after the church was over? What would you have done? Would you have gone back to the church a second time? See, when we come to this part of the letter from Paul to Titus here, he's talking about these false teachers and false doctrines that are being taught. And unfortunately, they're being taught all across America today. And there are people in churches today that will teach that Jesus did not bodily rise from the dead. And here in these churches on Crete, these false teachers, and, and Titus needs to go in and take a hold and put the proper pastors in place to get rid of this false teaching and heresy that's going on. 
Now, many of the commentators I read this week said that there were over 100 churches in Crete alone. And so there were many pastors that were needed to be placed into these home churches. And so that was, Timothy, that was Titus's task. And if you remember, Titus was tasked to do this because these folks who were teaching these false things, they were doing it for financial gain. They were getting money for it. Uh, and what Paul tells the, Titus is, listen, either they are corrected and begin to teach what is proper and true and sound, or you kick them out, Titus. And that's where we find ourselves. So Titus is instructed to do this. Now, if you go back before we get to verse 10 and look in 5 through 9, what are the, what are the qualifications for a pastor? Well, there were all of these godly characteristics, these godly qualifications, but there was one skill, and the only skill that was mentioned is the ability to teach. And so these false teachers are teaching falsehoods. So let's start right where we left off last week in verse 9. He says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, it's in this verse that we get our title our, for our sermon series because this key phrase right here is sound doctrine. It's the key to the entire letter. Paul's instruction to Titus is for the proper rule of order within the church. And that proper rule starts with sound doctrine. Without good, healthy, strong, sound doctrine, the church will creep into and it will go astray into false teaching. The Greek words for sound doctrine are yeanousi and didaskaleia. Now, didaskaleia means to teach. It means to, uh, to instruct. And yeanousi means sound, or even better, it means healthy. And that's why we get our sermon series, A Portrait of a Healthy Church. Because a healthy church starts with good, healthy, sound doctrine. Remember again, the only skill set that Paul mentions to Titus in order to put these pastors into place, it's not if they can read Greek or Hebrew or parse a verb or knew any of those things. The only thing this man has to be able to do is to teach and to teach healthy doctrine. That is what we need to do. Sometimes even the smallest of errors can have major consequences if they're not kept in check. And so it's important that sound doctrine comes from the pulpit, that it comes from our Sunday school classes, it comes from our home Bible groups. According to Paul, doctrine matters most of all for our well-being. It, it is what we need. It's what every Christian needs, and it's what every church needs. Sound or healthy doctrine provi provides a pattern that when followed promote, promotes healthy uh, faith, it promotes healthy love, it promotes a healthy service. So I think you can see how important it is for us to have sound, healthy teaching within the church. Someone defined doctrine as teaching from God about God that directs us to the glory of God. I like that, don't y'all? Teaching from God about God that directs us 
to the glory of God. And this definition provides a helpful framework for us. In this definition, then, we need, in order for us to have sound doctrine, we need to identify the source of that doctrine. We need to identify the object of that doctrine. And we need to identify the end game of that doctrine or what's the purpose of that doctrine. And so the source of sound doctrine is what? God himself, as it is revealed in his word. Listen, if you are, if anyone teaches anything other than what's in God's word, then it is not sound doctrine and it doesn't come from God. You know that God's word will never contradict itself, right? So if a man stands in the pulpit or a Sunday school teacher is in class and they teach anything that contradicts something else that is found in the word of God, it is not sound and that person is a false teacher. Now, sometimes we do things accidentally and sometimes we make mistakes, but this is not what Paul is talking about to Titus. These are people that are habitually taking scripture out of context, that they're taking scripture and making it say something that it does not say. And most of the time they're doing so for financial gain. They're trying to get something out of it. So the source of sound doctrine is God himself. R.C. Sproul wrote, the object of sound doctrine, so we have the source of sound doctrine, and now R.C. gives us the object of sound doctrine is God and all things related to God. So not only is God the source, but God is also the object of sound doctrine. It's all about God, right? That is what sound doctrine is for. Uh, sound doctrine teaches us to see God as the one from whom and through whom and to whom all things exist. It directs our lives to bring him glory. If someone is teaching that brings anything or anybody else glory, they're a false teacher. If they're teaching to bring their church glory, if they're teaching to make their name bigger in the world of preachers, if they're teaching for any other purpose or reason, if they're bringing glory to anything other than Jesus Christ, they're a false teacher. This is what God's word says to us. The goal of sound doctrine delivers us from false teaching, right? And the, sound, the, the, or the purpose of sound doctrine, if it delivers us from, sound, or from unsound, unhealthy, false teaching, then it also will help us become more like Jesus. See, sound doctrine is the key to becoming more like Jesus because if we don't learn what, who and what and who Jesus is, we'll never become like him. Scott Swain wrote, God loves us and in his goodness he has given us the good gift of doctrine that we might learn of him and of his gospel and that we might please him in our walk. Doctrine is the teaching of our heavenly father revealed in Jesus Christ and transmitted to us by the Holy Spirit in Holy Scripture. And it is to be received, confessed, and followed in the church to the glory of God's name. So the object is God, and what is the end purpose? To bring God glory. That is the purpose of sound doctrine. Paul writes uh, to Titus in chapter two, verse one, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So with a better understanding now of sound doctrine and what it is, let's look at unhealthy doctrine and how it affects the church. 
if you will, we're going to read uh, verses 10 through 16. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me? Really, I just want to wake some of you up. But anyway. <laughs> For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, Paul doesn't hold anything back right here, does he? You see right there in the very first verse in verse 10, what does he say? He says, there are many. So if you think over these hundred churches or so that are in Crete, there are many within the church that are teaching falsehood. There are many in the church that are going in the wrong direction. And we don't know how many that is, but it's more than a handful, I can assure you of that. And look at the term that Paul uses, this first term that he uses. He says that they are insubordinate. Now, this word insubordinate means that you don't have any regard for authority. That's what the word means. It means that you're going to do your own thing, and, you know, who cares about the authority figure over me? And so what that implies to us is that this false teaching isn't just coming from the pastors of the church. It's actually coming from the membership of the church, these insubordinate people, that the pastor, the elder that is in the church, Titus, who is the lead pastor of the church, when he is teaching, Teaching these sound doctrine that these people, these unsubordinate church members, are going against the authority. They're going against those that are. So we have it on both sides. On one side, we have te people teaching the wrong thing. And then on the other side, we have membership within the church believing and acting in an in, in opposite way of sound teaching. And that's what we see here. And look what happens when you're insubordinate. It says it leads to empty talkers and deceivers. And if you jump over to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, uh, Paul explain, uh, describes this same person to Timothy as people who have meaningless talk. Now you think about that. Anything that takes away from the mission of the church it's, he's saying it's empty talkers, they're deceivers, it's meaningless talk. And so you think about how do we apply that in our church today? Well, listen, it doesn't always have to do with a false teaching that's going on because these empty talkers, these uh, meaningless talking people, these deceivers, what they do is they just bring up anything that will destroy the unity of the church. They'll throw up a question or throw out some gossip or throw out something so that it can begin to have the church have all these schisms and factions in it. And that's what Paul is talking about here. It's not just the false teaching, but it's also those that are bringing this nonsense to other people within the congregation that is causing fractures 
and disunity within the body of Christ. And since anything false is ultimately ineffective and worthless, that means that it is also deceptive, right? And that's what's happening in the church of Crete. And we see that same thing happening in churches today. So the false teachers worked by sleight of hand, using the trickery of words and the enchantment of novelty to entice the ignorant or the weak to follow them. And why did they want to get followed? But for money. They wanted gain, financial gain, and the harm came primarily from the circumcision group. Now, the circumcision group, as you can probably guess, are the Jewish converts. These Jewish believers trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But here's the problem. They didn't trust in Christ alone. They said it was Jesus plus something else. It was Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus uh, keeping the dietary laws or whatever the case may be. And Paul says, hey, listen, your traditions will not supersede God's grace. God's grace is bigger because God through Jesus Christ is enough. You don't need anything else. You don't need traditions. You don't need to follow rules. You don't have to mutilate your body. You don't have to do anything else except trust in Jesus Christ alone because his grace is enough. That's what Paul is telling us. You can see the tone in Paul's voice as he wrote this, right? They must be silenced. They're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. Now, when he's talking about their being silenced, he says, listen, all right, Titus, you do whatever it takes. Uh, you need to go in there and you need to teach these false teachers. You need to teach these congregations what the sound and healthy doctrine is. And if they will not get on board, if they want to continue teaching bad things, if they want to continue to spread gossip and rumors and all kinds of disunity within the church, he says, kick them out. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? But in reality, it's very loving. Because God in the flesh named Jesus Christ came from heaven because he loved us so much that he died on a cross for our sin. How loving is that? And if we allow false teaching and disunity and things that come into the church that would take away from our mission, our vision of taking away God's grace, then we have to do everything we can to protect her. And that's what Paul is telling Titus here. Do whatever it takes. And now these family groups is not a mom and dad and sister and brother. The family groups are these home congregations. And now they could be one family with 20 or 25 people within the family group. And then they would have a teacher that would come and teach them the scripture. But it, most likely it's all of these smaller churches that were meeting in homes and these people are coming and they're messing up whole families and these whole families are falling away from the faith because of these false teachers these hucksters were teaching for profit they were fleecing the flock so to speak and paul says protect the flock do what you got to do even if it means kicking them out look in verse 12 it, it, verse 12 is very interesting because paul is actually quoting one of their own now, I got a question for you. Do we believe the Bible is infallible, meaning that it is incapable of error? Yes or no? Some of you do, some of you don't. Do we believe the Bible is infallible, incapable of error? Yes or no? 
Okay, do we believe that the Bible is inerrant means that it contains no error, yes or no? So when we read something in the Bible, even if it was something that is not directly from God's lips, then it must also be true because the Bible is infallible and inerrant, yes? And look what we see right here. Paul quotes Epimenides. He is a highly esteemed 6th century B.C. I forgot the B.C. in the first service, and somebody reminded me because this wasn't written. Uh, this was written way before the 6th century B.C. So 6th century B.C., Epimenides, he was a Greek, a Greek, a Cretan philosopher. And here's what he says. He says, look, they're all lazy gluttons and evil beasts. They're evil. They're evil people. And Paul says, that's right. He's right. But not all of them. There are some that are not uh, liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. But he compares those in the church who are teaching these falsehoods, whether they're the leadership or the laity. He says, listen, they're liars and they're, they're evil. How would you like to be, that, to be said about your church? In fact, the Greek verb to cretize actually means to lie or cheat. And these people were doing both of those things. And because these false teachers were liars and they were evil and they were lazy, Titus's response to them was to rebuke them sharply. Sharply. Now let me tell you, there are times within the church when it's okay not to be politically correct. And what I mean by that is there are times if somebody is teaching something that is false, that it is hurting the church, if it's dividing the church or making the church not in unity with one another, then it is important that the leadership, the pastor, maybe a teacher, a deacon, step forward and sharply say, you're wrong. But every time we do that, it is to be a purpose for restoring and educating the one who is wrong. Listen, you remember what uh, Paul told Timothy. He said, be ready to reprove, reprove and rebuke with gentleness and respect. And so you do so with gentleness and respect, but it doesn't mean that you hold back your words. You don't have to be mean in order to do it sharply. And Paul is telling Tim, Titus here to do it. Listen, don't make any bones about it. These are false teachers. You go and confront them and you try to educate them, show them where they're wrong, and you try to restore them back into the fellowship. And if they will not come and repent of what they're doing, kick them out. They don't need to be there because all they will do is bring disunity within the church. And in dealing with error in the church, the primary goal is always for correction and restoration. And here's what's so sad, though, that I would say that 99% of Americans, and I'm not going to put a percentage on it, but most people sitting in the pews in a church today who call them Christians wouldn't have a clue when they hear false doctrine or teaching because they don't know their word of God well enough. Let me ask you a question. Our Mormon friend or our Jehovah Witness friend comes and knocks on your door. Do you shoo them away? I, heard, I know some of you have because you've told me. Yeah, those Jehovah Witnesses came up to my door and I kicked them off my property so fast. You went, boy, they get running like a scald dog. 
Should we show them away or should we invite them in? Listen, if we know scripture and we know that they're teaching false doctrine, shouldn't we invite them in and share the good news of Jesus Christ, the true gospel with them? But the sad thing is, is most of us don't know where their doctrine is flawed, and we certainly wouldn't know how to uphold the doctrine that we do believe. And you say, well, Brother David, I don't have a seminary degree. So? Just read God's Word. And if you read it on a regular basis, if you spend time with it on a regular basis, and when you know when you hear something wrong, there's that thing in your heart called the Holy Spirit that just wells up and says, oh, that's not right. Listen, trust. Spend some time in God's word. Don't kick them off your porch. Invite them in for a glass of tea and a conversation about the true Jesus Christ. If you'll notice that there's a large Jewish population here. And these, these Jewish Christians are saying, hey, listen, I've converted to Jesus Christ. I am now a Christian, and it's great that I'm a Christian. But you know what? Christ is not enough. I need to be circumcised, or I need to follow these moral laws, or these uh, dietary laws. And, and, and they say that Jesus is not enough. And, and what Paul is reminding Titus here, he's saying, listen, all of this has already been settled, Titus. If you were just remember what we did in Acts chapter 15, you can go and look not right now, go and look in Acts chapter 15. It's the council in Jerusalem. And what happens is uh, Paul takes Titus with him to the council in, Ju in Jerusalem and says, listen, guys, some of you say that you have to be circumcised in order to follow Christ. I say you don't have to be circumcised. And they debate for all these days. And at the end of it, Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and John come back from the council and say, you're right, Paul. You don't have to be mutilated. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow any rules. God's grace is enough through Jesus Christ. And guess what? Titus was his test subject. Titus was born a Greek, and he was Greek and Jew, he was, but he was not circumcised. And Paul is reminding him, listen, you're the test subject. You don't have to teach anything else. Grace is enough. Jesus is enough. You don't have to have Jesus plus anything else. It is by faith alone that you are saved. Now look at verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. When sound teaching is taught and applied in our lives, cleansing comes from the inside out. Our minds and our consciousness are made pure. Someone wrote, pure people are those who have been cleansed from their guilt by the blood of Christ and have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and are being constantly cleansed by the Spirit from the pollution of their sins. So as a pure person, our mind is focused on whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Do you have a pure heart and a pure mind? See, if you've trusted in Jesus alone, you're spending time in the word. He says that we're pure, and he says those that are not pure, nothing is pure. Everything is detestable to them. These false teachers claim to know God, but their lives and their hearts prove that they're frauds. Look at verse 16. 
It says that they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. These false teachers always are adding something to salvation. And if you hear any person from any pulpit says that Jesus is not enough, run away. He is enough. These false teachers want you to focus on uh, on your every do and your every don't. They want you to focus on everything but your relationship with Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, he is enough. These false teachers promote legalism instead of grace. And when you watch these false teachers, you'll notice that their words and their actions don't match up. Their lifestyle is different than what comes out of their mouth. C.S. Lewis wrote, of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. Of all bad men, Notice he didn't say Christian bad men because if you're a true Christian, you would never act like this. But religious bad men are the worst. See, when you act one way on Sunday in a totally different way Monday through Saturday, you are this detestable person, he says. He says these are the people that deny Jesus with their lifestyle, but they come on Sunday morning and, oh, praise God. And then they do the curse in the, on the golf green and they and when they lose the big one and they're throwing their rods see these people are not living the way that they say that they believe the bible has some harsh words for these folks right he says that you're detestable this word is only found one time in the entire new testament and it's right here it's not found anywhere else now, if you took your Septuagint, which is the, is the Greek copy of the Hebrew Bible, the first 39 books of the Bible, the Septuagint is copied from Hebrew to Greek. If you take the Greek New Testament, uh, Old Testament, excuse me, you'll find this word many times. And every single time you find this word, it has to do with idolatry. And so what Paul is saying to this detestable people, he's saying that you putting other things above God, when you put your family above God, when you put your spouse above God, when you put your children above God, when you put your sports above God, when you put your activities above God, when you put anything above God, you're making that thing an idol because it's above God and you're worshiping that thing. And Paul says you're detestable in the sight of God pretty scary, isn't it? Next, he says these folks are disobedient. I don't need to tell your parents and grandparents what it means when you have a disobedient child. Listen, if you have a disobedient child and you allow them to continue to be disobedient, you're going to have a heathen. And so what does God do and what do good parents do when their child uh, misbehaves and is disobedient? They punish them. There are consequences. And the same way with God here. He says that there are consequences when these folks teach that it is more important to follow man's rules rather than it is following in God's grace, there will be consequences. No, we can't just do what we want. 
See, what happens is we think, oh, God's grace is so great. I can do whatever I want. I can sin all that I want. Paul says, listen, where grace abounds, sins supersedes. It superabounds. Grace is so much bigger than sin. And he is absolutely right. And God's grace is so much bigger than the sin that's in our life. But what we can't do is we can't continue to sin. We can't go on saying, oh, I can have this habit. I can drink that drink. I can smoke that thing. I can read that porn. I can look at this show. We can't continue doing that saying, oh, well, God's grace will just cover it all up. No, that's not what he teaches. But he does teach that God's grace is enough, that it abounds, that if anyone tells you that the way to heaven is Jesus plus anything else, he says, walk away. They're false teachers. You remember what what Paul writes in Ephesians 2? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Have you received, have you experienced God's gift of grace? Have you put your faith and your trust in Jesus alone as your Savior and Lord? See, it's a gift. You can't earn it. You can only receive it. It's not a result of works. It's nothing you can do for it. Because if there was something I could do for it, I could boast about it. But there is nothing I can do except receive his grace. Finally, these false teachers are unfit for any good work. Essentially, what Paul is saying is that these folks are counterfeit Christians. That's what that word unfit means in the Greek. It means counterfeit. It means anybody that says one thing and does something else. Yes, I come to church. Oh, I raise my hands and sing to Jesus, and then I'm out doing whatever it is on on Monday through Saturday where nobody would ever guess that I was a Christian. And that's what he says, they're counterfeits. And if our faith rests on anything other than Jesus, it is counterfeit. Did you know that? If it is Jesus plus you do the rules, or Jesus plus you walk this way, or Jesus plus anything else, your faith is counterfeit. And that's what Paul is telling us. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how we are saved. So how do we apply this to our lives? I guess there's probably a lot of ways, right? But, but let me just bring out maybe one or two. Our belief and our conduct define who we are. If I believe one thing and I conduct myself in that belief, it defines who I am, yes? And if I come to church and I believe that Jesus is Lord, I believe that it is by grace alone, I believe that it's Jesus plus nothing else, but my conduct is, often, is different than that, what do I really believe? And see, you know, I, I talk to our teenagers for a moment. I know how hard it is at school. You know, you come to church, you put your faith in Jesus and him alone. You want salvation. You've been baptized. You, 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 you want to be that person that God wants you to be. And then you go to school and your friends curse, and they want you to look at stuff on the Internet that you shouldn't be looking at. They want to cheat off of your test. I know. 
I've been there. I was that guy. And I know how hard it is for adults. We put our faith and trust in Jesus alone, and then just the work day gets so busy. Our, our, our cubicle mates, our bosses, our insubordinate, everybody, they just come and it just crashes in on you, and you just feel like you wanna scream, and you start to do things that you wouldn't do. You would cut corners, or you would lie to get the cell, or whatever the case may be, just so that you would get them, everybody off your back. And I know how hard it is, parents, when your child, I got two of them that are grown and out of the house and I can't hold on to them anymore. And when they go in the ways that they shouldn't go, when they see people that they shouldn't see, when they go in directions that you know is wrong and they're hurting and you know that they're living in a life that is not right with God and, and you just, you see them and you're hurting and you just want, you want to shake them and, and help them. The way you believe and the way that you live says all about who you are. I look at Hollybrook Baptist Church and I see God moving in so many ways. I see his grace just being rained down upon us. I see people being saved and baptized. I see people joining the church. I see so many wonderful things. And just think, church, if every single one of us, were not only did our belief and our conduct, if it would line up and it would be for Jesus, just think of what God could do with Hollybrook Baptist Church. Just think of where it could be. I can tell you right now, within the next couple of years, I am praying, and maybe even sooner than that, but I am praying that we have to go to three services because God's grace has rained down on Hollybrook Baptist Church because we are a people that believe and do what this book tells us to do. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you that that you have given us sound teaching, that you are our source and you are our object and you are the purpose of sound doctrine. I pray, God, that this church would be a church that stands on healthy doctrine and teaching. Father, maybe there's someone here that needs to trust in Jesus. This is that moment. Maybe someone needs to, uh, to come and join the church. This is that moment. Father, we just ask that you would move. As we sung earlier, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Flood this place. Let us feel your grace. In Jesus we pray. Let's stand.